Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes, completely eradicating, not just reducing, completely eradicating. I believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for Mondays, not Fridays and get to do their most meaningful work. The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content, but instead shift the context under which you operate. This podcast is titled Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. In each episode, I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices, which are not always easy and comfortable, but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves, and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action, as those were the moments when you chose leadership. At the end, I will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast. And with that, let's get started. Shai David is a serial entrepreneur and the co-founder, chairman and CEO of Retrain.ai, which uses AI and technology to train human beings for the jobs of the future. In the interview, Shai reveals both the very practical data-driven as well as the grounded spiritual part of himself and how he balances both in his day-to-day. We spoke about his vision for the future, how he deals with often debated and polarized topics like AI and unemployment, and how entrepreneurship is different now than when he started his first company. Hi, Shai. Welcome to the Choosing Leadership Podcast. Hi, Sumit. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. To begin with, can you start by sharing a little bit of who you are and what do you do? So, hi, everybody. My name is Shai David. Dr. Shai David in my school designation. I am a serial entrepreneur, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Retrain.ai. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that uh, background. And before we go into what you do today, right, can you share a little bit of your backstory? How did you end up where you are today? For sure. So as I mentioned, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been busy building startup companies for the better part of the last uh, three decades. My last big project with three wonderful co-founders. Ron, Michal, and Iran was a company called Kaltura, which was a video enterprise video system, which started as a small startup company and actually did a pretty multi-billion dollar IPO last year on NASDAQ. And uh, Kaltura sold it to multiple markets, including the learning and development market. And that led me to the understanding that there's a big opportunity in having systems that cater to leaders in learning and development in HR development. CHROs, and that's what's brought me to Retrain.ai, which is a talent intelligence platform, and we'll talk about that more in a second. Prior to that, I spent uh, a few years in academia, getting my PhD and postdoc in open information systems and access to knowledge systems, so trying to combine scholarship 
in the actually building stuff. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And that's quite interesting, right? Because entrepreneurship is uh, is by definition very different from academia or like a PhD. So how did you like manage the jump from uh, like being in a very structured environment to dealing with uncertainty and being your like being a leader in many ways is I would say diametrically opposite uh, to academia or specifically research. So how uh, what has been right that driving force that have you not just one but start multiple companies? Well, I think I was always curious uh, and always had passion about building stuff. And I think that academia gives you the tools to be able to ask the tough questions, not always necessary to, to answer the right answers. And I was always fascinated with being able to ask tough questions and then trying to solve it. Um, I suppose that being an entrepreneur, building stuff has to do with some certain sense of dissatisfaction. If you wake up every morning and you say, oh, the world is great and everything is dandy, then you wouldn't go and enter the craziness of startups because chances of success are pretty low and it's 24-7 work. But uh, once you have that sense of urgency, once you figure out that some things could be made better, then it's like a virus. You have it in you and unlike COVID, there is no vaccine. So once you got it, you're in. And for me, that happened early in my career. I had another company before the video company. So I guess I've been having fun for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, can you share a bit more about that, right? That sense of dissatisfaction or wanting to make a difference or improving something. Is that something personal or do you see a common thread between the kind of companies or the kind of technologies or industries that you tend to venture into? Well, I grew up uh, when I was a kid. I was born in Israel, but I grew up parts of my life in Silicon Valley. And I had the pleasure, the luck, the fortune or the misfortune, depending how you want to look at it, of really seeing the early days of personal computing coming to being. And already as a kid, I got this sense of wonderment and fascination about, oh, there's like this new type of machine, it's called a computer, and it can do things in a very different way than humans can. But for me, it was always about finding the way that computers can actually empower people rather than mm. represent. And I think that that's a common thread between the companies I got interested in. I was in a first company that did recommendation system and then GPS navigation systems and then video systems and now talent intelligence and HR systems. And I think that the common thread in all of this is these are tools to empower people in order to find better content or navigate or have a better entertainment or learning experience and now having a better HR experience I am a true believer in the power of technology to be used for good. And I always try to build technology that's going to be really useful for people and provide a lot of value. Yeah. Uh, and I, what I really like is you use the word awe and fascination, right? With technology and what it can do. And that uh, can be the driver to start a company. But at the same time, entrepreneurship or like the day-to-day -day operations of running an organization can also be very different, can also be dealing with a lot of pressure, always having too much to do on your plate, not enough time. So how do you balance that drive, which is, as you said, right, awe, fascination, a lot of possibilities to the day-to-day, -day, right, which involves tough conversations, getting things done, being on top of things. How do you merge the two? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the best answer I have for that is that you have to see the wider picture and you have to center that wider picture on customer value. You have to really understand and you have to have your team understand what is it that we're building? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? What is it that we're actually building? 
How is that? In my case, it was always software, but I guess the same is true on hardware and products and services. How is our product or service or hardware or software? It could be a chip and it could be a delivery system. doesn't matter. How is that product or service providing value to our users day in and day out? Mm. Hey, Brin had this the toothbrush criteria, right? Could you build a product or service that would be used like a toothbrush at least twice a day? That would be a good sign of and provide the immediate value. So I've always kept that in mind. And if you keep that in mind, that helps you center the universe and the turmoil and the tornado that is kind of startup. Because if you do right for the customer, a lot of other things around the day-to-day kind of find themselves, solve themselves out. That uh, for me was always very important. Yeah. And if I would ask you like more on a tactical level, what do you do? What do you specifically do? to keep this alive for yourself, right? And not lose it in the day-to-day business, uh, but then also keep it alive for the people that you're working with. Yeah, so one very simple mechanism to do that is to look at your calendar at the beginning of the week and uh, whether you can technically do it with color coding or you can do it mentally, but look at your calendar every week and divide everything in your calendar into three. Everything that has to do directly with providing customer value should be green. That's committing customers and designing products around them and whatnot. Everything that is directly supporting green activities should be yellow, right? And everything else should be red. And now look at your calendar and make sure that there's enough green and a little bit of yellow, but not too much red. If you do that, the rest of it is going to solve itself out. If you find yourself that most of your day, you're busy doing expense reports and filing taxes and uh, commuting and all the rest of the things that we all do, if that red activity overtakes your calendar, something's wrong. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that uh, tactical advice. I think that will be very useful for a lot of people who I know struggle with that day-to-day management of what seems urgent, but uh, you tend to deprioritize what is important in the process. So thank you for sharing that way. And I think having it color-coded also makes it very visual. So that certainly helps uh, to keep it alive in your awareness. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So coming back to now, right, coming back to today, can you share a little bit about the vision that you have with your current company that you're building? Yes. So so retrain.ai, and everybody can check out our website, www.retrain.ai, is a talent intelligence platform uh, that I'm building up the chairman, CEO, co-founder, together with two wonderful co-founders, Isabella, who's our chief operating officer, and obviously Mon, who's our chief technology officer. Was some very experienced uh, leaders within the tech world, the big companies, and we brought a lot of um, experience from building large-scale AI systems for the military. Uh, and the three of us partnered together to build this talent intelligence platform, which is aimed at helping solve the skills gap problem. And the skills gap problem, just to define it briefly, is the gap that exists between what the market needs and the skills that people have. Today, we have a secular trend where skilled labor is in very short demand. Everybody talks about self-driving cars and chat GPT, but the reality of the market is today, there are hundreds of thousands of open driver jobs around the, jo- around the world. There are hundreds of thousands of nursing jobs and pilot jobs, but also welders and technicians and salespeople. There's just a dose of talent. The, I think I saw statistics that the, by the beginning of Q1, re- just recently, Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S. shared statistics there were 11.4 million open jobs and 4.7 job seekers. So more than 
two jobs or almost two jobs per skilled laborer. And that's a tragedy for business because businesses cannot grow because they just don't have enough people to work on one hand. On the other hand, there's a tragedy for individuals because that number of 5.7 million people looking for jobs in America, that is very misleading because there are millions of people that don't show up because they don't go to the unemployment office to look for jobs because they gave up. Why did they give up? Because they don't have the skills to participate in any of those 11 million jobs. So that's an individual tragedy. So how could it be that on one hand, we have millions of jobs that are unfilled, and on the other hand, we have millions of jobs that can't find work? The answer is, there's a mismatch. The market needs specific skill sets, and some people just don't have those skill sets. So when we started the company, we said, you know, this is a very tough problem. It's probably one of the biggest problems that is facing humanity right now, probably second only to global warming, I would say. And it has a connection because a lot of those jobs in demand are actually green jobs and new energy jobs. And there's a big connection between the two. But how could we have make a dent in that problem? And our background is all in software and data. And we thought that putting together a talent intelligence platform that is going to allow organizations and governments to better define whether, you know, that's a government organization that's helping with vocational training or a large employer that is looking for talent. If we can create a language and capability for organizations to map vocational opportunity, to really use data to understand what is it they need and to be able to rank their candidates and hire the right people with the right skills. And if they can't find the right people with the right skills, develop development programs that are going to help them people that are almost there, but need a little bit of help onboarding. That will make a big difference. And at the same time, use the same technology in order to further the careers of existing employees that otherwise would either quit or be left out of the job market. Think about a bank that's moving, closing shops on Main Street, that's closing locations, physical locations and moving online. What happens to all those people? Without a system that can show them a career pathway, they are let go. Think about all the candidates that are applying to job after job and they don't get accepted because they don't have the right digital skills. We think that when you put a map like that, it makes a big difference. And we think about it almost as the ways or the Google Maps of the labor market. It creates a map of occasional opportunity. It allows us to place individuals on that map and it allows us to map career pathways and learning pathways on the map so that we can get people from where they are today where they need to be, which is where the market wants them. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that vision. And let's uh, let's zoom out if I see into the future, let's say a couple of years. What do you see are the biggest challenges which lie ahead for you as you make, move towards making this a reality? So um, I think that we're obviously kind of caught up in a very big wave that's bigger than just retrain AI or bigger than just HR tech, which is this whole AI revolution. Some people say, and I totally agree with that, that the AI revolution is indeed the fourth industrial revolution. You know, we had the steam engine, we had the electrification, we had a communication revolution, and now we have the AI revolution. This really changes things. There are reports showing that anywhere from 20 to 50% of the jobs as we know them today are going to be eliminated or radically changed. This requires a dramatic reshifting of skills, upskilling, reskilling, etc. So I think the biggest challenge for us is that there's going to be a race in the industry about which systems could really be put in place fast enough to help enterprises with that change. And I think that some of the bigger players in the, micro, in the market, like Microsoft and Google and OpenAI, are going to try and use general purpose tools in order to help enterprises do that. 
And I think in some sense, they're already doing that. And to some degree, that makes a lot of sense because they're very powerful off-the-shelf tools like ChatGPT that can really start helping enterprises. But our hypothesis is that in every vertical market, whether that's retail or supply chain or security or defense or anything like that, there's going to be dedicated artificial intelligence software that is actually catering to a specific need. And the race is on to who is going to be that leader within the HR tech space, and we think that we could be it. And the difference between tools like the one that we're developing and the general purpose tools like ChatGPT is that we are building a white box that is auditable, that is understandable, that is responsible. This is not a general purpose black box that just makes recommendations. This is a system that's designed to prevent bias, to be responsible, to support decision-making for HR professionals in a way that is actually fully integrated into the existing HR tech fields. So the biggest challenge that we have is to build this fast enough and to integrate with enough integration points around the ecosystem so that our customers can benefit from this quickly because they need help right now. Thank you for sharing that. And as you said earlier, right, this is one of the biggest issues that we face. And many of these topics can also become political debates or debates with very polarized opinions. So especially as a CEO, right, how what additional challenges does that present for you uh, to deal with the stuff which is not directly related to business, but maybe shaping the narrative or addressing the media or addressing some of those like um, concerns or even criticism that is addressed towards AI in general, but that tends up uh, like landing at your footsteps? Absolutely. I think that's a critical question for every business leader, which is uh, how do you integrate within the ecosystem and within the regulatory environment, particularly for us, there's a big regulatory alignment that needs to happen. Um, people are very worried that AI systems and particularly AI as it relates to HR is going to introduce bias. I always remind people that AI and machine learning is no more and no less than tools that find patterns in data. If you feed those tools with data that has bias, guess what's going to happen? That bias is going to be amplified. And this is a major worry. And regulators are waking up to a world where decision-making on anywhere from uh, the order of giving organ transplants to parole decisions in the courts are being aided by AI. And too many times that AI is some black box where nobody can really understand that. So imagine that, you know, you're going to get your kidney transplant or you're going to get your parole because an AI said so, that doesn't really stand to reason. So there's a lot of regulation that needs to happen across the board, particularly in HR tech, there's already regulation in some states, particularly in New York, that prevents the use of black box AI. That's not auditable and not explainable and not responsible, prevents the use of that within HR decisions. So we're trying to be very active around it. We are participating in multiple forums, including the World Economic Forum, uh, global Technology Leaders Program. We made comments on the New York law when it was open to the public comments. We're actually convening a conference uh, in a few weeks from now, on May 17th, about responsible AI for HR. So we're trying to be good corporate citizens and we invite all the ecosystem partners to collaborate with us. On business, we sometimes compete with them. But when it comes to the future of this market, setting standards, showing the way in terms of responsible AI, we're happy to collaborate even with our direct competitors and definitely with the big companies like the Microsofts and the Googles and the Oracles and the Workdays and the SAPs of the world in order to make sure that as this fourth industrial revolution takes shape, we're taking into consideration 
the needs for responsible AI, and we're building these systems in a way that empowers humans rather than detracts from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for your organization itself, right, or for your role as a CEO, can you share maybe a f- one or two practices that you do on the organizational levels for you to be that role model citizen, right? Because if you're talking about HR or if you're talking about a vision, then you have to lead by example with your own right. organization, right? So can you share a bit uh, b- bit more light on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we put you know, in front of us the mirror, or maybe even you can call it the flashlight of responsible AI. Eventually, when we sell technology, when we license technologies, the software, the service solution with model AI models and AI infrastructure are very opaque, potentially. So we are setting ourselves to very high standards for responsible AI, responsible by design. Everything that we do, from the way that we collect the data, the way that we store it, the way that we secure it, the way that we use the data, the way that the algorithms work, in each one and every one of those steps, there would be fundamental checks and balances and mechanisms built in. And sometimes it makes the software more complicated, sometimes it makes it more expensive to build, but that guarantees that we don't just get some black box answer, but we can actually trace the way that the data was collected, the way that it was analyzed, the way that the AI made recommendations. And in fact, because we have that responsibility by design, we can actually now use the system in order to do the opposite, which is to prevent bias. And we've seen that happen time and time again. One of the features of the product, for example, is the capability to take an old job description, to analyze it for the skills that you want, and to rewrite the job description in a way that would be non-biased. Non-biased against gender, non-biased against age, non-biased against any of the other metrics by which people sometimes get uh, excluded. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Coming back to a bit of the on the personal side, right? As a third-time entrepreneur, right? How is that journey different for you, right? Because the world we live in is very different. The people that uh, are working for you are different, but they also expect different things from their leaders. Right. So how is the experience different from, let's say, when you started it for the first time or for the second time? Yeah, so so I think the world had changed in the sense that there's a dramatic acceleration in pretty much every aspect of the business. On one hand, it's easier to raise money, theoretically, if you have a strong team and a stronger idea, because there's more money. You know, there were thousands of VCs. 20 years ago, when I started, there weren't so many VCs. There wasn't so much money going in. So there's a lot of money that is looking for investment. On one hand, that makes it easier. On one hand, on the other hand, the fact that you can rely on infrastructure, mostly from cloud providers, make it dramatically easier. And now that you can also rely on AI tools like Copilot to really accelerate the development, makes things more easier. On the other hand, honing in on real customer value, building a team of great people, uh, facing tight budgets against tight deadlines, none of these things have changed. So I think that when the team is looking at me as a certain entrepreneur, one of the things that they're looking for is kind of the secret sauce or the cheat sheets. Uh, and the way that I want to bring that forward usually is with what I call playbooks. There's a playbook for sales, there's a playbook for customer success and customer delivery, there's a playbook for the cycle of product from market requirements, product requirements, design. And if you play by the playbooks, you understand that building effective, large-scale, highly um, accelerated 
enterprise roadmaps could be more science and less religion. There's always a little bit of spiritual aspect to it in the sense that you have to, you know, go on a wing and a prayer, understanding that you're actually going to where the market is going. There's always an element of risk. But beyond that market risk and beyond the big strategic bets that you need to take, a lot of the day-to-day execution is actually science. There is a science to collecting customer feedback and building that into a roadmap. There is a science on transitioning customers from pre-sales to post-sales to deliver. There is a science to finding leads, finding interest, converting them, contracting with them and whatnot. All of those things have been tried and true. Right now, there's already hundreds of enterprise SaaS software companies to learn from. There's a lot of best practices. Investors understand it, employees understand it, the buyers themselves understand it. So I think it is becoming easier. And what I try to do as a serial entrepreneur is to really bring those best practices and focus. One thing I I keep reminding the team is that we're building an assembly line. Gone are the days where this is all about relationship selling and we have this great idea and we'll go golfing and sell it. Sure, first Lighthouse Customers is all about relationship and all about finding trust in the unknown. But once you've found product market fit and you're starting to scale the business, it is science and science that helps you from every aspect of the business. And that's the one thing I learned over the years in this rodeo. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think one thing which I'm taking away is that, right, even though a lot might be changing, there are some business fundamentals or human fundamentals which remain the same. And then if you focus on that, you will be like on the right path. And the second thing which uh, which I took away is that notion of learning, right? So continuously upskilling yourself Absolutely. and learning from others, learning from a lot of research, a lot of science, a lot of examples. So can you share what do you do for yourself or the key members of your team to not lose touch with what is happening and continuously upskilling themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the two guiding principles that we have are customer centricity and data centricity, and we educate ourselves around that. Every time we have a discussion, we don't want to have discussions like, oh, you know, R&D is going to come and say, oh, this is really hard. Or marketing is going to say, oh, this keyword is very expensive to buy or this conference is complicated to attend or professional services is going to come and say, uh, we're missing resources. All of those things are legitimate discussion points, of course. We like to start the discussion with talking about the customer. The customers expect us to be at this conference or there will be a lot of prospects, right? Or the customers gave us feedback that the software doesn't load fast enough, we need to change it. Or the customers uh, told us that the price is this or the price is that. We want to be customer-centric. Every discussion point needs to start with a statement about our customers. What do they want? What do they expect? How much are they willing to pay? How are they using the product? That's part one. Part two is that when you make statements like that, they have to be backed with data. It's not like, oh, I heard through the grapevine that these customers are happy or not happy. Well, the discussion should be, this customer is unhappy, and we see that their usage is dropping. That would be a data-driven, customer-centric statement. So I tried to work with the team to have every discussion in those terms. And once you have every discussion in those terms, it pretty much becomes patently clear to you, what are you missing? Oh, there's a problem that we don't know how to solve. Okay. Let's go and educate ourselves and see who else in the market could solve this. Where could we learn more? Could we have another discussion with the customer? Could we find a different solution? And that puts you in this notion that you have to continue to learn and continue to innovate. And it really helps you focus on what the problems are, how the product would be made, 
better, faster, harder at all times. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, right? And apart from what you do as a CEO, what you do as an entrepreneur, what else keeps you busy? Uh, I try to take a few hours every week on working with other entrepreneurs. I do some angel investing on technologies that really look promising. I decided for me, I pretty much only invest in AI because I think that data first companies and AI companies are going to rule the world. And there's been a real paradigm shift. So I think that's the future. And I invested in a few of those. So I try to help the investments that I've made, but also unrelated to many investments. I try to take a few hours every week um, of my busy calendar to meet with entrepreneurs, mostly first-time entrepreneurs that are looking for some guiding hand that need the support, that need the fresh eye to look to look at that. And uh, that really gives me satisfaction because sometimes you've been there, you've done that, you know where the bodies are buried. Sometimes a smart word to a young entrepreneur can make a real difference for them. Just this morning, I had a discussion with one entrepreneur who is having some hard time raising funds. He raised some funds, not enough, and they need to to cut the team a little bit. We've had a discussion about how do you actually deliver the message to the team that you're going on, you have money, the company's going to make it, but some members of the team need to be let go. That's a tough conversation. And for somebody that never had done that, sometimes hearing it from somebody that unfortunately had done that a few times, um, that makes a big difference. So that's what I do in the rest of my professional time. And in my spare time, or maybe it tells you the reverse, I actually... I'm a yogi and I do a lot of yoga and I try to spend a few hours on the mat every day, both on the meditation practice and the philosophical aspects as well as the physical aspects of yoga. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and since you mentioned yoga and meditation, can you share what impact or what benefit do you see from that practice in your day-to-day -day work as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that the one key takeaway from yoga, if you focus on the spiritual and philosophical aspects of it, is that we understand that we are all biased. We are all biased towards our own image. I'm in the image of the CEO, the smart, experienced entrepreneur that knows everything, right? But deep inside, I know that there are a lot of things I don't know. So if you take a few minutes a day to meditate, and you understand who you are deep inside, so you understand that deep inside you, there's somebody who is different than that image. Mike is the image of the all-knowing CEO, right? And that is a lesson in being humble. Somebody says, oh, no, I don't know everything, and I should continue to learn. And I need to keep up that spirit of self-inquiry. And I need to keep up the spirit of gratitude. And I need to keep up uh, surrounding myself with smart and knowledgeable people. And through it all, also maintain some calm because this is one thing you learn in yoga that you shouldn't be too attached to the events. Your life is going to be full of fluctuations. Good things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. If you attach yourself to the day-to-day, -day, then your boat is going to flip. You shouldn't let the boat flip. And yoga is all about the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. So if you can keep calm, that really helps you in tough times. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that uh, very practical advice and also that connection between spirituality and meditation with day-to-day -day work, which we often tend to miss. And I think that explains even the way that you have been answering the questions, right, in a very grounded, but also in a very composed, well-thoughtful way. And I think uh, yoga or meditation doesn't really help you do that, like when times are good, but also especially when times are challenging or when you're dealing yeah. with a tough conversation, it can keep that longer term perspective, as you said earlier, into your present 
moment to moment awareness absolutely and i think that you know if you if you take those ideas the guardians of liberation they call them in yoga right of keeping calm and self control keeping the spirit of inquiry keeping good company and uh, and being always grateful then you can achieve that the mode of liberation and that is a mental state liberation is not heaven is not a physical place you're not going to die one day and go to heaven heaven is a place on earth as the as the sun goes i was just listening to this uh, alanis morissette song yesterday which had this line i'm high but i'm grounded or in her case it's maybe using some chemicals but in our lives as entrepreneurs we're always high on life we're high on the adrenaline that building a startup is and i think that the best advice i can give other entrepreneurs and the listeners is that uh, yeah you should be high but grounded you could be high on the adrenaline of building it and you know you get the cover articles and you win the big deals and you hire the right people and you can be high but you should be grounded because you better believe it that there's going to be tough days on the roads when people quit and when you don't get the funding and when you lose the deals and when the market changes or where your bank collapses or you know the fluctuations are coming you better believe it and in those days you should be grounded because if you're grounded you know you're going to bounce back absolutely i love that and especially heaven and hell i think uh, sometimes we can make these words into like huge heavy words but what you shared earlier right entrepreneur life if you go into a tailspin because of the circumstances because of the events maybe that is hell and then if you can continue to be high but still keep yourself grounded and not let your behavior be impacted then that right there is heaven right not somewhere else but right and then and yeah as you said that's uh, a process of self inquiry more than like looking outside it's a process of looking inside and seeing that who do i want to be how do i want to act and then keeping that long term vision and mission into the present day awareness even if the present day conversation is like with your example right having to let go of some people absolutely absolutely and i think that i think the corollary is that uh, you should always be detached from the outcome you might succeed you might not succeed if you went by the odds of a startup succeeding you wouldn't even start you know mm-hmm. and so daunting the chances of really building a really large business statistically speaking the chances are very low if on the other hand instead of looking for that big outcome you're looking to make your best effort to take a big shot and to give it a try then you might lose you might win but at least you have a fighting chance and i think the people that miss that are never going to be in this business of starting a young companies and that's fine too you know this is not for the faint of heart yeah for the open of heart you have to have your heart open and really believe that this is possible yeah and i think i loved your example of playbooks earlier because yes you cannot uh, like move forward without an outcome or without a goal but then you detach yourself from that by focusing on the process or focusing on how you do that what are those small steps that you can take and not mm-hmm. be like disempowered if the outcome is not happening right so yeah and uh, absolutely and i think the one thing the one place where you see it so clearly is in an enterprise sales for example if you have a 30% win rate that's amazing right that means you're going to lose 7 out of 10 deals if you're going to get discouraged every time somebody says no you're in the wrong business because 7 out of 10 times you're going to get a no and that's a good outcome you know you could actually have a pretty decent business even if you win only 1 in 5 so 8 out of 10 people are going to tell you no and you're still going to have a good business but if you focus on the no's then then that's like good we have a joke in sales where we say we make money on the yeses and the no's we lose money on the maybes so you should let go sometimes you win sometimes you lose 
that you should really focus on the positive. Yeah. And since you mentioned sales and since you mentioned uh, like data driven and numbers earlier, many times in enterprise sales, the cycle itself is long, right? It's not just mm-hmm. a week or two, but it could be a month or two. So yeah. can you share how do you measure or what do you measure on a day-to-day, on a weekly basis uh, yeah. for the salesperson to keep that long-term and short-term into perspective? Yeah. So so I think we can answer that in two, two different ways. From a company perspective, to know whether you're in the right business, whether this is a good business, and to really eliminate that question of time, the most important metric that you need to measure is the ratio between the lifetime value and the cost of acquisition, also known as the CAC to LTV ratio, right? And if your lifetime value is high because you're doing multi-year deals and the cost of acquisition is high, that's fine, provided that they stay within a ratio and you actually have the cash to, that, that becomes a cash flow issue because if you're making money over time and you are spending a lot of money up front, it becomes mostly a cash flow issue. But companies that have a CAC to LTV within some industry metrics are really good. A different way to measure that same CAC to LTV ratio in a bit more immediate way is to measure how many months does it take you to return the cost of acquisition. So imagine that it costs me $10,000 to get a customer and that customer pays $10,000 per year and stays with me for four years on average and the CAC to LTV would be one to four, but the time to return would be 12 months. The whole money from the first 12 months is going to go back just to recoup the cost of acquisition. The company is well-funded, that's actually pretty good business to invest in. If the company is not well-funded, maybe they can't afford it and they need to find ways reduce the cost of acquisition, maybe try before you buy, maybe some subservice, things like that. So that's from a company perspective, that's the best way to measure it and to kind of eliminate the time dimensions to look at captivity. Um, from an individual perspective, for a salesperson who is ramping or for a sales manager that needs to assess their territory, then I would look at things like weighted pipeline and coverage. Every deal in the pipeline has a probability of close. And you need to develop some metrics specific for your business, but industry standard would be a ratio of one to three or one to four between your weighted and non-weighted pipeline. What that means is that you're weighting your deals in the pipeline with probability of close, right? And you're looking at the weighted and the non-weighted. If your coverage is one to three, one to four, and your close rate, as we mentioned in the example before, is 30%, it means that you're in decent shape. If, on the other hand, you think that you're overall pipeline is of certain size, but your weighted pipeline is say 10% or 20%, it means that the pipeline is underdeveloped. You're identifying a lot of leads, you're not progressing the pipeline fast enough. And I hope that the listeners are understanding how from both of these CAC to LTV and weighted, non-weighted pipeline, those are two mechanisms to eliminate the element of time, right? You understand how that works? Yes. Yes, I understand. I think the first one, the CAC to LTV, I think it's so simple, but many times people either do not have their finger on it, uh, but because that gives you the lever, that gives you where should you leverage, right? Because if your if your CAC is lower, then that means that you can actually spend a lot more exactly. as long as your LTV is also right higher. And many people are not doing that because they see that as an expense rather than as an investment, which very easily will pay off. Right? So that's very fundamental. And I think the second thing which you mentioned, I think on an individual basis, how do you manage given these long cycles? How do you manage or where do you focus or how do you bring an element of predictability 
rather than be surprised by it, like two months later, suddenly you are out of the pipeline or uh, suddenly you're not hitting your numbers. How do you manage that and like be able to take decisions early in the pipeline or early in the process rather than later? Absolutely. And I think that just continuing that second thought about weighted, non-weighted pipeline, part of it is really playing by the playbook and teaching the salespeople that this is a game of winning points. The most points you can win when you actually close the deal, but if the pipeline is underdeveloped or the sales cycle is long, then you win some points by getting verbals. You win some points by sending out proposals. You win some points by scheduling demos. If all of your pipeline has people that raise their hand and saying, I'm interested, but you haven't developed it, then you don't win any points. And systematically, if you play by the playbook and you do all those things, you schedule demos, you send out proposals, you get verbal confirmation, you go into contracting, it's a science. It's going to work, yeah. right? On the assumption, of course, there's some baseline product market fit and, and that people, there's them pulled from the market. If the product sucks and there's no pull, then all of the techniques are, of course, are going to fail. And, and that's fine too. But I think that's absolutely critical. Uh, and I think that the, the one advice for sales leaders is is also always look on on leading indicators rather than trailing indicators, right? So at the end of the quarter, how many deals we have closed is a, a trailing indicator. It's a very important indicator, but the more important indicator is how big is our pipeline moving forward because that's a leading indicator. You might have had a great quarter, but next to you completely took all the deals that could be closed this year. And you look great, but you're going to fall off a cliff. Not great. Always, uh, you know, in driving, it's very clear to us. We always drive looking forward, not looking at the rearview mirror. And too many people, I think, are looking at trailing indicators and they celebrate success, which is important, but then they fall off a cliff. Um, and that's not really good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I love that we spoke about uh, spirituality. We spoke about self-reflectiveness, but at the same time, we spoke about those very scientific, very data-specific numbers, right? Without which, like, no spirituality can help. And I think it's a balance between the two, which shapes that confidence or that groundedness that we also address. So thank you, Shai, for sharing everything that you shared. Before we end, right, is there any way that people can reach out to you? Or if somebody wants to know more about what you are up to, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, absolutely. So so we have a fantastic newsletter, which I promise is not too savvy. We try to be kind of a good industry resource. So if you go to www.retrain.ai, uh, go to our resource section, sign up to our newsletter. Uh, and if you're interested, come and speak to us in this big event that's coming up uh, at May 17th in New York about responsible AI. And also we're going to be exhibiting at Unleash in Las Vegas at the end of April. So that's a good way to meet the team. And we'll come to you if you or any of the listeners uh, represent a large employer or a large government agency working on vocational training. And if you want to be part of the mission of putting millions of people into great jobs, then definitely come and talk to us. And I always take hours and I'm happy to connect to listeners. My email is shy.david, S-H-A-Y dot D-A-V-I-D at retrain. And I'm happy to talk with any of the listeners. Thank you, Shai, for sharing everything. I will make sure to include these links with the show notes. And uh, yeah, before we end, once again, uh, like all the best for everything that you're trying to do for your organization, but also for the wider economy, for the wider ecosystem, as you mentioned. Thank you. Fantastic. And again, thank you for the opportunity to tell our story today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast. 
and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction, not just for yourself but for everybody around you. If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.